This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am Alex Fitton, your host, and this week we're going to hear from Rita Sornan. She is the CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation. So, you know, just like no big deal, right? Um, That's a huge deal, and I am so honored that she took the time to do this interview with me. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys of a few things. Be sure to check out my Facebook Live with a video featuring Rita talking about the interview that we did. I do those always the day after our podcast launch, so even if you're listening to this after launch day, you can always go back to the Adoptive Mom Facebook page and check out that interview, the uh, secondary interview that is. Also, be sure to check out my live show that I do every Thursday night at 8.30. That's just me, and sometimes I'll have a guest on there, and we'll just be talking about topics that relate to adoption. Um, I love feedback. I love discussion, and I'll occasionally be hosting a giveaway for those that join me. Don't forget about the Empowered to Connect conference coming up and the Birth Mom Brunch that the Adoptive Mom Podcast is partnering with Shared Beginnings to host. So with that all in mind, let's jump into my interview with Miss Rita Sorenen. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Hi, Rita. How's it going? It's going great, Alex. Great to be talking with you. Ah, oh, I am I'm so excited to be talking with you. This is this is a really, really awesome interview. I've been looking forward to this. So um tell us a little bit about your yourself, introduce us to your family, who you are. Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm, I live here in Columbus, Ohio. I'm the proud uh, mother of four children, two bio and two stepchildren, and um, they live all over the country. My oldest daughter lives in Roanoke, Virginia. My youngest daughter lives in Napa, California. I have another daughter in Atlanta and a son out in Washington State. So uh, I get the good news is I travel a lot for my job, so occasionally I get to I get to see them on the road as well. I was about to ask. I mean, that gives you an excuse to travel all over the country too. And it to- does, it does, it does. But you know, I wish they I wish they were all very close. But they're all doing incredible things, so I'm I, I couldn't be more proud. Ah, that's so awesome. Have they are they um, kind of following in your footsteps with the interest in adoption care as well, or are they doing different stuff? You know, they're doing different things, but um, they all um, are very interested in causes and and working on behalf of vulnerable um, uh, citizens in this country. So um, uh, although adoption isn't necessarily their cause, they are very uniquely uh, interested in in the, the work that nonprofits typically do. Yeah, and that's so awesome. I mean, it's it's great when everyone comes together and they can touch the different needs and um, make sure that everything is being uh, being taken care of, you know? Exactly, exactly. Awesome. So you are uh, just, this is no big deal, of course, but you are the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation, which is actually a huge deal. So tell us a little bit about that. I know you've been working there for a while. What brought you there? I have been. And, you know, I've been involved in this notion of 
um, working on behalf of abused or neglected children most of my professional life. So prior to starting at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption almost 16 years ago now, I was actually the uh, director of the Court Appointed Special Advocates Program here in Central Ohio. Um, and was there for a number of years, but before that, um, I worked with what was then called the League Against Child Abuse. It was a, a, the Ohio chapter of the National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse. So really started out my professional career in this world in child abuse prevention. Um, had the incredible opportunity to move to CASA where it's a bit of intervention. How do we help these children once they're involved in uh, court proceedings as a result of having experienced the trauma of abuse or neglect, and then had the incredible opportunity to come here, which sort of felt full circle to me, what happens when our prevention efforts fail on behalf of children and our intervention efforts move them toward this status of simply waiting for a family. So um, it's been an incredible journey for me to be able to do what I'm most passionate about, which is um, working on behalf of our most vulnerable children. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's that's so incredible. So is there something in your in your past or your upbringing that that led you to this passion? Or was it something you discovered later in life? No, it's a great question, because I was one of those children. I think I came out kicking and screaming. And, (laughs) and it was always a sort of that's not fair. And and my that's not fair inevitably had to do with, uh, you know, something that was happening, because I was a child or because someone I knew was a child. And it it was it was not abuse or neglect. But it was, you know, that a child wasn't allowed to have a voice or someone would say, well, you'll think about that differently when you're an adult. And the reality is, uh, I think about children and and justice the same way now as I did when I was seven, eight or nine. And so I think it was more this, this sort of, for whatever reason, I had this incredible sense of uh, fairness and justice, but, but mostly when it came to children and, and their inability to experience fairness or justice. And I think I grew up in a family that was quite concerned. You know, I grew up in the 60s when lots of things were happening um, in this country and across the world. And, and people were uniquely sort of like now focused on headlines and issues of fairness and issues of peace and um, all of those things that that I think society struggle with. But for whatever reason, um, it, my soul seemed to be drawn to this notion of, of, of justice for children. Yeah. And, you know, as we all know, in the adoption community, that that passion for these unfair and these sad, sad situations with kids who have no voice, you know, it's, I think that you have a choice to make, you can either turn a blind eye, because it's just too sad to you to bear, because it's yeah. something you care about, or you can face forward, and you can see these horrible, hard things with your own eyes. And actually do something about it. But seeing those things is a deterrent for so many people. You know, in the foster care community, we hear over and over and over again, I could never do it. I'll get too attached and something like that. So it sounds like you made the choice to keep looking for it. And I, I assume you have seen a lot of hard things. We have, you know, and, and, and I think it's just that recognition that, look, we've got one, as far as we know, we've got one chance at this life. And it is, it is a, it's sometimes an incredibly, um, horrendous journey for for our children or for our neighbors or for 
um, people in our community. And to ignore that is to ignore the the, the basic rights of, of so many of 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 our our fellow humans. And so for me, it's you know take the risk and just move forward. And sometimes that risk breaks your heart, absolutely. And sometimes um, you don't succeed at what you're going to what you're trying to do. And sometimes the numbers just seem outrageously overwhelming. But if we don't do it, who will? Right. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's exactly why we, our family got into this because we adopted a teenager and everyone said we were crazy and we were crazy, but that was my mentality. You know, if we don't do it, who will? Um, And so, oh, I just, I love that. So tell us a little bit more about what the foundation is and what it does and then, um, and then what you have done within the foundation. Sure. Um, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is a national nonprofit public charity. And I think for those that hear about us, we're sometimes mistaken for a, a family foundation because of our name, Dave Thomas. And I'll talk about that in a second. Or, or a corporate foundation because of our close relationship with the Wendy's company and its franchisees. But Dave Thomas, who was adopted and who created the, that, that iconic Wendy's brand and business, um, when he was still chairman and CEO of the, of the Dave Tom, of, of the Wendy's company, but was beginning to wind down his business connection a little bit, um, really wanted to do something to make more public the Wendy's commitment to giving back. And, and that's just in their DNA. How do we as a business give back? And the thing that seemed most natural to him was was remembering and focusing on the notion that he was adopted. And although he was adopted as an infant, he didn't have a, a an easy life. His adoptive mother passed away when he was relatively young. His father was a bit of an itinerant worker moving from place to place. And so he was raised uh, very, very much of his life. He was raised by his grandmother. And in fact, he left home at age 16. And, and what does that sound like? So many of our old their youth in care, right? They're they're raised by kin, hopefully, but if they're not, they sort of move from home to home, and at some point, they're just on their own as a young adult. So right. he was, he was, I think, uniquely connected to this notion of foster care adoption, even though I'm not sure he realized that that's what it was. Um, but created the foundation as a national nonprofit public charity to do two things: to uh, raise awareness about this conversation and this cause and this this um, uh, effort of foster care adoption. And then we're a grant making organization, and so we dedicate our dollars that we raise to organizations that aggressively move children from foster care and into adoptive homes. So it's 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 a great story, I think of a, a cause that started by someone that has a personal passion for it and is will he was willing to um, leverage the brand of the Wendy's company unconditionally in order to do a, a, this incredible job for children. Um, and, and he started the foundation 26 years ago now. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary last year. Um, and, and we've grown significantly from that original notion of just trying to figure out um, the right niche. How, do, how does the foundation fill a gap that might exist in this conversation of foster care adoption to some pretty aggressive um, programs that we that we manage today? Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. And and I think that it's worth noting that you are, if not the only one of the very, very few national charities and nonprofits that that commits itself to this cause, right? 
yeah, really the only one that's exclusively focused on foster care adoption. And, and we are a one-trick pony. Our mission says that we will dramatically increase the adoptions of, of children from North America's foster care systems. And we have a, two separate foundations, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption U.S. and Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada. Identical mission, vision, strategic initiatives, and in fact, the staff of the of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption U.S. manages the work of, of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada, but that's a wholly separate legal entity, and their fundraising is exclusively within Canada as well. Yes. And, and so I was looking whenever I was doing research for this interview, I was looking at just some of the, some of the things that you guys have championed, including National Adoption Day, which is a huge, huge deal. And I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of, a lot of people are, and my, my listeners specifically might not know that that was, that was you guys that did that. Yeah, it was one of our um, early initiatives, um, and we were the lead founder and funder of the National Adoption Day Initiative, but it was built on this notion that was happening out in Los Angeles by a really innovative judge a, a number of years ago. Um, and in Los Angeles at the time, there were um, just this huge, there was a, an incredible backload of cases waiting to be finalized. Everything was ready. Paperwork was done. Um, families were identified. Um, uh, everything was ready to go. They simply needed a court hearing, but they couldn't get them scheduled because there was, so, there was such a backlog in the Los Angeles system um, 20 years ago. And so this judge did a, a, just a, a really simple but, but innovative thing and said, well, let's just open the court on Saturdays. Let's get volunteer judges, volunteer attorneys, volunteer workers in, and let's get these cases done. Let's let's finalize these adoptions. And we had heard about that and thought, you know, there's something in this idea of about, a, and they called it Adoption Saturday. Um, and so we found out more about it, got some partners together and said, let's try this idea of a, a day dedicated to adoption in the courts, ostensibly, it started out in the courts, right. where the courts open their doors on Saturday and they finalize adoptions. Well, the reality is across the nation, not every court has that kind of backlog. So we, we, we wanted to make it a little more global. And let's let's create, not unlike Mother's Day or Father's Day, a National Adoption Day. So we... we came around to the the first the Saturday before Thanksgiving as a a great time to begin to think about you know the holidays are coming up uh, Thanksgiving is 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 one of those incredible family holidays in this country um let's focus during that time of year when people are uniquely focused on family and let's draw attention to this cause and let's ask courts to open their doors um uh, and and finalize adoptions on this special day. Now we never want anybody to hold their adoption for National Adoption Day, but if we if if they can finalize on on Adoption Day, then that would be great. And of course, it's morphed into uh, a, a, something that happens in all fifty states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and it's very local. What we get is a lot of great local press talking about you know the Smith family finalized their adoption on National Adoption Day, and there's a picture in in the in the newspaper, and it just helps us normalize this conversation that adoption isn't a secret, quiet conversation any longer. And then particularly with foster care adoption, it is a cause to celebrate. So it's turned into just an incredible national effort. Thousands of adoptions are finalized every year on or around National Adoption Day. And and yeah, we're really proud of of our our small part in that. I love it. I love it so much. I mean, that's a day that we, my family and all the families I know celebrate every year. So thank you for that. Oh, of course. Um, And so 
that brings us to kind of your journey. And I know that everyone's or most people's least favorite thing to do is toot their own horn. But you have a lot of lines under your bio, girl. So (laughs) what are some of the things that you have personally added to the foundation? Well, you know, the one thing that we talk about a lot, first of all, I I think just we already had a very focused mission, but what we couldn't figure out a, a number of years ago around 2001, 2002 was, look, if our mission says dramatically increase the adoptions from foster care, that underneath that word dramatic is something measurable. And at the end of the day, at that point, we were doing great awareness activities, creating um, with Dave Thomas in them award-winning public service announcements and um, uh, our, our uh, beginner's guide to adoption, um, poster campaigns, elevating the conversation wherever we could. But we simply couldn't say at the end of the day, we've made an impact on this many adoptions in this country. We know for sure that our work has allowed this many children to now live in their forever homes. So we kind of went underground for a couple of years and pulled ourselves together and began to do a a scan across the nation of where is it that we could be uh, the best value added in this conversation of foster care adoption. We didn't want to duplicate anything that was already happening, but we wanted to be able to to really focus our resources and make a difference. Um, and, And we began to look at this particular target population of of children in care. And that's the population that that was most likely to age out of care. Because what we saw as we began to look at the statistics is that year over year over year, and this hasn't changed much, you know, somewhere around 20,000 children age out of care every year. They, They have a goal of adoption. They've been freed for adoption, but they turn 18 or 21 and leave care without a family. And it felt like to us, an incredible system failure um, at best, um, and at worst, just an oversight. Um, So we looked at what was happening across the country, and we did a scan of organizations and said, what's keeping you from getting this population of children from, um, from being adopted? And what we heard wouldn't be a surprise to you or your audience, I don't think, is we heard, well, we don't have either the financial or the human resources to focus on um, older youth in care. They're typically placed, they're stable, supposedly. Um, and yes, we're supposed to be finding them a family, but we're back at the beginning triaging um, children coming in to care that have been abused or neglected and getting them through the system. So we said, I think we found where our niche needs to be. We need to figure out how we can address this target population. And, and we know that that's, you know, when we say older youth, it's children age nine or older. Research shows that by the time a child is freed for adoption and turn nine in care, their likelihood of being adopted decreases significantly. And nine is still such a baby. Um, mm-hmm. Children in sibling groups, children with mental or physical challenges, children who've been in care for so long that they've given up hope for being adopted and may push against that notion of being adopted. And then social workers and judges listen to them when they say, they, no, thank you, I don't choose to be adopted. So we, we really began to focus on that target population of children. And then we said, well, what are the best practices that exist? And there were some emerging best practices. There were some strategies, but there was no evidence-based program that caseworkers and social workers could use to say, look, I've got a 16-year-old that's been in care for 10 years. They've moved 15 times. Um, Business as usual, putting their face on a website or on a, a Wednesday's child program really doesn't work for them. And so 
um, what is it that that works on behalf of this child? And 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 so we found some 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 emerging best practices, but nothing at an evidence based level. And we began to pull together then. Well, what would a program, what would a model look like that a social worker could use and say, here, this is, I've got these children that I refuse to let age out of care. And now I've got this, this tact, these tactics that I can use to get them adopted. And so we called the child-focused recruitment. We pulled together what we believed was a model. Um, we also, though, went back to our best philanthropic partner at the time and still is, um, Wendy's franchisees, Wendy's employees at the corporate level, Wendy's suppliers, and said, we've got this idea. If we have um, this strategy of giving grants to organizations, public or private, large or small, who use this model that we've created – and focus on some of the longest waiting children in their community, we think we can get them adopted. And so um, Wendy stepped right up and they increased their fundraising in their restaurants and dedicated it to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And that allowed us in 2004 to launch um, seven pilot sites. And we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids to out of respect for the, the increased fundraising that the Wendy system did. And we tested this model. And the models, it's not rocket science. It's good social work. It says, first of all, you have to carry a smaller caseload of children. These are the longest waiting children, and they deserve every ounce of the social worker's attention. So 12 to 15 maximum of the number of children on your caseload. You have to develop a relationship with these children. What we heard Alex time and again was that social workers said, oh, no, I, I don't meet with the children on my caseload. I, you know, I just, I just look for a family for them. And we said, well, how can you find the best possible family for this child or youth if you've never met them, if you've never heard their wishes and fears and dreams, if you've never heard them talk about their journey through foster care. So meet with a child regularly, carry a smaller caseload of children, do a deep dive into the case file that exists because there is a, just a, a probably a, a depth of potential adoptive resources from former foster parents to teachers to mentors, people who are in and other family members, people who are in this child's life that may have been overlooked or simply didn't know that this child was available for adoption. So do that case file review, do a, a due diligence on all of those potential adoptive resources, and then work an aggressive plan to get these children adopted. So long story short, we started this this program in April of 2004 with seven pilot sites across the nation. And very quickly, within just a couple of years, we had a, a footprint in all 50 states in the District of Columbia with at least one recruiter in each one of those states working on behalf of that target population. Um, and, and, it, and we realized we were on to something. But what we said was we couldn't be another untested program. It felt like it was working. We were seeing the numbers. Um, we could work with our marketing friends at Wendy's and make it look really good. Um, but the reality was we didn't know if it was actually working. And so we engaged Child Trends out of Washington, D.C. to do a, a, a rigorous five-year evaluation comparing children served by this model in a jurisdiction against children served by business as usual. So it was a randomized con uh, controlled trial evaluation. And at the end of five years, what we found is that on average, a child served by this model is about one and a half times more likely to be adopted. But counterintuitively to the public, perhaps, but exactly what we had hoped would happen, the older a child is when served by this program, the, the increase 
it increases their likelihood of being adopted up to three times more likely um, to be adopted. And for children with mental health challenges, more than three times more likely to be adopted. Wow. That put us that I know. And, and, it, and in child welfare, if you can move the needle just a tiny bit, you're successful that this model was moving the needle that much on behalf of exactly the target population we had identified, older youth, children with challenges, children opposed to adoption. Um, that put us on the path of saying we, we can't just be doing this on a one-off basis any longer. We have got to embed this and scale it until something better comes along. Um, but we've got to embed it and scale it in every state so that every child in that target population has the benefit of this this recruiter. So we're now working a new strategy of getting it scaled in states. We have a, a partnership with the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. We have it fully scaled in the state of Ohio. We have six other states that we have contracts with um, uh, in order to embed and scale it. Because what we know also is, first and foremost, it's the moral and right thing to do. Our job when these children are freed for adoption is to get them adopted. And when a child ages out of care, we've failed that job. So we've got to get back to looking at no longer accepting failure. But we also know that these are children who've been in care the longest. And so, and I never start with this because I don't want to equate cost with, with a child's life, but the reality is for state budget directors, for county budget directors, there's a return on investment when you move this child out of foster care into adoptive homes. Um, and so states are beginning to stand up and listen to this and and work with us to embed and scale the program because ultimately they can sustain the program when they move some of their longest children out of expensive care and into adoptive homes. So the one program I think that, that we've worked the longest on, and in 2004, did I know where it would be today? No. But, but I did know that we had to do something different. We couldn't any longer allow an 18-year-old to be on their own to to have their car break down and suddenly they can't get to work and you know within days they're homeless because they don't have a family to fall back on. So uh, we're so super proud of Wendy's Wonderful Kids child-focused recruitment and the steps along the way that have gotten to, gotten us to this stage. And it's it's never enough. Um, we want to have it embedded and scaled in all 50 states. And then we also want to begin to dedicate some of our resources to those critical post-adoption supports that are a, a real gap in this nation as well. So I'll stop for a second and see if you have any questions about that. No, I'm just, I'm, I like speechless. This is amazing. Like everything you're saying, that's, that's been my passion for so long. And, you know, in my research for this interview, I saw that you guys do some wonderful things with, um, with these kids and with the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. Um, I had no idea just how dedicated you guys were and this program was to older youth. And that's amazing. And, you know, you said older youth are, or um, challenged, excuse me, mentally challenged or physically challenged uh, kids as well. And it's hard because we we all know that with trauma, often that, that yeah. pretty much means all older youth. Exactly. Um, and that makes things harder. And I think that, equipping equipping families and equipping caseworkers on exactly how to handle these cases with these kids and, and explaining to potential families what they need will increase um like well it, I'm so sorry I'm stumbling over my words I'm still thinking about everything you've said but it will increase the the ability for these kids to stay in those homes because unfortunately exactly. failed adoptions are a thing that happen more often than we'd like to admit. And I think that with programs like this, who can better explain these kids, um, disabilities or, um, 
or issues or hard things that their families are going to have to hold with them now, then we can make such a huge difference in their lives going forward. Exactly. You know, through this program right now, we're supporting about um, 335 uh, individual, we call them recruiters, adoption recruiters across the United States and Canada. We've touched um, over 17,000 children um, and we've got today about 700 in pre-adopted placements, and we finalized adoptions for nearly 7,000 of those children. But when you drill down into the demographics of these children, at the point of referral, 24% of these children referred onto the Wendy's Wonderful Kids caseload had already had a failed adoption or adoptive placement. So and the average age of these children um, at referral is about 13 Um 64% are in a sibling group, and 82% have at least one identified special need. Um, you know, and, and even more important to us, about 33% of the children on the Wendy's Wonderful Kids caseloads now are not in a family placement. They're in some sort of congregate care or institutional placement, and yet we're still successfully serving them. So clearly it works. Um, it's it's in the numbers, but it's not working well enough if we don't have it available to every child in need. And so that's that's our quest here over the next couple of years. Absolutely. So which, which states are currently um, those flagship states? Yep. So Ohio is scaled. Um, we now have um, relation con- contractual relationships with Kentucky, Louisiana, um, New York State, North Carolina, Washington State. And just recently, we've added uh, Colorado, and we're in conversation with Utah. So we're we're excited about that. And and you know the the what we don't want to do is grow too quickly. We've had some other philanthropic partners step forward to help us with this, and we're we're so excited about that, so that we can front load philanthropy um, to the states to quickly get the, the number of recruiters in place that it would take for that target population. Um, but then it really is the responsibility after about three or four or five years, when those cost savings begin to settle into the state, then they can begin to take over the long-term sustainability. And that's that's what we have to assure. It can't just be another sort of flash-in-the-pan good idea. It's We're in this for the long haul, and, and we want states to be in this for the long haul, too. So there is an initial uh, co-investment, even with philanthropy at the table, and that co-investment becomes an increasing commitment of the state. So we're so proud of these these first states that have said, yes, we're going to try this. Um, and it, it took about a year um, to, to, to really nego- identify the target population in those states. Um, what are the real numbers? How, how can we serve them? Um, what can the state's co-investment be? And where are those dollars coming from? Do they have to be legislated? Are they in the general revenue um, and then, you know, let's let's make a long term commitment to these children. And some states, you know, by by law can only make a couple of year contract commitment. Others can make four year contract commitments. So it, and, and then making sure that we have the staff here to, to adequately manage, because every recruiter that comes into the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program goes through um, a, a consistent training from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption staff. They've got the consistent um technical assistance and um, uh, troubleshooting and, and monthly contact from the grant managers to the recruiters. So we just want to make sure that we don't stumble over ourselves as we get very excited about growth. So we're trying to do this very measured. And yet, if a state steps forward and says, we're interested, we want to be right there, ready to have that conversation. That's amazing. And I, you know, I'm actually from Louisiana, so I'm thrilled oh, to hear great. them on the list because I've seen that need and it's yeah. it's big. So Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I do not live there anymore, but I still have family down there. And so it's always, it's always heartbreaking to hear those numbers. Um, I know. so I'm super excited about that. And, you know, I would imagine that, and I'm, I'm totally speaking for, for these, uh, these systems in these states that I'm not a part of, but I would imagine that they would be a lot more willing to work with a foundation such as the one that you work with, um, seeing your track record and seeing how long that you've been with the, with the foundation and that it's not just, it's not just a business venture for you, but this is something that you are passionate about and that you're in for the long haul. Absolutely. And that combined with the fact that we do have a rigorous evaluation. So it's, it doesn't just look good. It it really does work. And, and that we are willing co-investors that this isn't just hey, here's a good idea. You figure out how how to fund it. You know, we're with them every step of the way. Um, But ultimately it will be, will, will absolutely be their responsibility. And it allows us to get into states as well. And, um, uh, look at, you know, are there policy gaps that exist? And is there a way that we can help be a voice in the states? And sometimes, you know, we, we want to do that at a level that the state wants or accepts. We're not coming in to push our way in and say, hey, here's everything you're doing wrong. Rather, if we can be an added voice, then we want to be a resource to the states as well. Definitely. So, we um we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when I asked about your history personally and what what led you to the work that you're doing now. But I wanted to ask, how has adoption specifically impacted you and your life? And do you have any stories with your work in the foundation that that have have been life changing for you? You know, every day I think of, uh, particularly when I was at CASA and, and we were deep in the files who were of children who were actively engaged in this process. They had not been freed for adoption. They hadn't gone home yet. The courts were still trying to determine. And, you know, the stories that, um, as you try and train advocates to adv- to be a voice for those children in court, uh, a couple of defining stories there of, of, of the kind of abuse that, you know, you can read about any day in the newspaper that our children have suffered that just drives, has to drive you to say, I, we have to stand up and protect these children. So that, that my cost experience really, I think, got me ready for this. But man, oh man, the stories that we have seen through this Wendy's Wonderful Kids program in particular, and I'll tell you one that just resonates with me um, every day. This one young man, um, had been in care for a number of years. He was very shy. He was really quite opposed to being adopted, but I think it was more, he was, it was self-protection, right? It was just a layer of self-protection of not wanting to be hurt again by adults, of not wanting to move again, not wanting to, to, to risk being abused again. Um, but he landed on the Wendy's Wonderful Kids caseload and she very gently got to know him and, and got to understand who he was and what his journey had been. And, and as they, over the a few months, talked more and more, he continued to refer to another young man in his life, and she found out it was his best friend. Um, and the more she talked to him and heard how he talked about his best friend and his best friend's family, who frankly didn't know his circumstance, because, right, we know what our children in care do. They don't share some of these things with with um, with, ad- with other adults. Um, and even their friends may know a little bit, but may not know a lot about what's going on in their life. So the recruiter took the risk and went to this, the best, his, his, his uh, best friend's family and shared what she could and, and said, you know, what do you think? Do you, do you see any way that maybe this might be a possibility for this young man? And they, they started crying and they said, oh my gosh, you know, he's already a part of our life. We just didn't know what was going on. 
And so long story short, they moved forward. Um, um, the young man wanted to be adopted by this family. The family wanted to adopt them. They're in court and the judge is doing exactly what he should be doing. He's um, questioning the social workers and questioning the attorneys. And, and he, this young man was old enough. He was 16. Um, the judge asked him what he felt about this adoption. And for the longest time, he wouldn't answer the judge. He was so shy, but the judge was patient and, and nudged him a little bit more. And finally, um, uh, the young man looked up at, at the judge's last question of, you know, what do you think about this adoption? Do you think this is the right thing for you? And, and he looked at the judge and he said, now my best friend is also my brother. You know, that's the power of this um, bringing the, the people in a child, making sure that a child has this life, not just lifelong connections, but a family and that something as simple as, this young man that was right there in his circle of community was able to become his permanent family. It, it continues to drive me to say, we know those connections are there. We can get it done. We just have to have feet on the ground and we've got to be um, dedicated to this notion that not just some children deserve a family, but every child deserves a family. And that moves toward our unadoptable is unacceptable campaign. You know, we, we heard so many times as we were exploring this notion of Wendy's wonderful kids, we would hear from the very social workers. And I, I'm never, I never slam these folks. They have incredibly hard jobs and they are often overwhelmed and underpaid. And, um, but, but we would hear time and again, the very social workers that were charged with getting these children adopted say, yeah, but this child's unadoptable, or some of my kids are just unadoptable. You know, they just can't live in families. And that's sort of scratched at our souls from day one. And so I think this this notion that, yeah, some children have had an incredibly tough start in life. They've been traumatized. They've been abused. They've been neglected. They've been abandoned. And they may push back. They may have challenges that have to be dealt with. They may need incredible resources but it doesn't it doesn't negate their need for family um and and even some some ch children may not be able to live in a family at times because of the kind of care that they need but they still need that permanent family notion that surrounds them the rest of their lives so you know when you ask them um personally what's driven me it, it's 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 the honor that i've had to get to know children sometimes at their at their absolute lowest and families sometimes at their absolute worst and, and believe that there is a positive path forward, that there is hope for absolutely everyone and that every child is adoptable. Absolutely. And that's something and that goes along with something that I I say a lot is that a lot of times people think that by adopting these kids that they're they're needing to fit the kids into their mold of what a family should look like or um, how a family relationship should look like. And they feel like that's not possible for them or that's not possible for the child. Right. Instead of instead of resolving to to mold their family around the needs of the child or the needs of the community when we're talking about the foster care system as a whole. And I think that taking that pressure off of these families would open up so many more doors to getting these kids families. And we, you know, so many people agree that the family is the most basic, most important system in our society. And to, to, to eliminate that for a child is, is taking its feet out from under him. And so, exactly. 
yeah, it's it's great to hear that so many different people, including your amazing foundation, are dedicated to to fixing this at the roots. Look, families are as diverse as 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 humans, right? Right. And they come in all shapes and forms. And and although I I didn't have a personal adoption or abuse experience, there were there were challenging times growing up when my grandmother took care of us. Um, when my parents couldn't, and and that notion of you know we 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 first and foremost believe that every child should be with family if at all possible. But when they can't, family just takes on a, a different form, and it, it's just a, a different person that comes into their life. So um, yeah, I think it's it's critically important to believe as as a core value that that there's nothing worse than de- denying family to a child simply because of their journey um, through foster care. Right. Or, and, or like I said, or um, because they're not going to fit into your idea of what a family should look like exactly. in, within those walls. Exactly. Um, gosh, I love it. I love it so much. So what this kind of gets into like the, the action part of it. And I wanted to know what, our listeners or just what the community as a whole, how they can get involved and how they can help your foundation on, mm-hmm. on a, with, a, with their time and with their money. Cause I know that That's those right. are separate things and those are two very big needs. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. And I think, you know, first and foremost, I think, um, um, particularly people want to give time. We, we work with hundreds of organizations across the nation that we trust completely. And so we can always refer people to an organization with whom we have a relationship if they would like to mentor a child, if, you know, if they want to keep it local in their community, if they want to consider fostering, uh, of course, or adopting, or if they want to help um, with those organizations in their community that, that need the kind of fundraising that, that, can happen. We want folks to have a very strong voice, and there's nothing more important than a unified voice uh, on behalf of vulnerable children and families. For example, um, a few months ago, the adoption tax credit was at risk of being eliminated. And so pulling together a very strong advocate's voice and helping um, policymakers understand the value of an adoption tax credit took a really strong and quick unified action. And so having folks just sign on and say, yes, if, if you need our voice, we're there ready to, to and we can guide that voice in, in, a, in a particular direction. We don't do a lot of that, but when there are particular pieces that are important for strong voices, then we want we want as many as possible. We also, for those families who have fostered or adopted and who are interested in, and I, I we never push anybody into this, but are interested in sharing their story, we do want to normalize this conversation. So we have, like you're doing now, we have a lot of press opportunities where we can say, hey, you know what, this family adopted under these circumstances and they're willing to talk about it. Um, or they fostered under these circumstances and they're willing to talk about it. So again, um, I think using uh, voices of experience to help normalize the conversation. And then, of course, absolutely, we're a national nonprofit public charity. And and I think Mr. Thomas was very smart in not creating a family foundation or an endowed foundation. By having to raise funds, we have to get out there and, and talk about the, the work of this organization and engage with others. And so, um, you know, particularly in the states where we're scaling, but all states, we, we love to continue making those connections where we can raise those critical dollars and then dedicate those funds back to that state in order to continue to grow the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. There's also some other ways. We One of our programs 
again, a program that Dave Thomas started sort of just organically when he was still president and CEO of the Wendy's company is the Adoption Friendly Workplace Campaign. Um, he, he talked to other CEOs and said, hey, do you offer benefits to families that are formed through birth? And of course they did. And he said, well, if you do, then why don't you offer benefits that are families uh, to families that are formed through adoption, paid leave, um, some uh, reimbursement for expenses? Um, and so we've carried that program forward. And I think, um, you know, listeners, uh, depending on where they work, if there aren't adoption benefits in the workplace, um, we've got a whole template and package of resources that they can take to their employer and say, hey, just think about this. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of organizations that have um, adoption benefits in the workplace. And, and let's think about it for our place of business. Um, engage with us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, because the more robust this conversation is, the more we learn from each other. And I think the better we are at advocating, advocating for exactly what um, our children in care need as well. So those are just some ideas. Oh, I love it. And so um, if it's okay with you, I have some just closing questions that I ask every all of my guests. Um, sure. So are you good with that? I'm good with it. Good deal. So what do you wish someone had just looked you in the eye and told you and made you believe at the beginning of this journey um, with your working with CASA also, but mainly with the Dave Thomas Foundation? Oh, you know, I'm not a natural leader. I love my job and I love I love being a leader, but I'm a little bit of a reluctant leader. And I think if someone had just looked at me and said, oh, come on, you can do it. Um, I might have I might have progressed a little bit quicker along the way. <laughs> you uh, you could have fooled me with that, with your track record with the foundation. <laughs> um, OK, so what is something you wish you had done differently? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I think. um um, stepped back at times and, and put a more, um, and, and for myself, you know, I, um, I think, um, gotten an advanced degree, I think just stepped back and given myself the luxury of time at, uh, of, of going back to school and really digging in and, and, and being a little bit more educated on, on some dynamics of, of this world. But, um, I, I certainly don't regret anything, but I think I, I didn't, I never gave myself the luxury of time to go back and get an advanced degree. That's a good one. I don't think I've ever gotten that answer. I like it. So, all right. And this one is usually directed at adoptive mamas. So it's going to be a little bit different for you. But I always ask, what is your favorite way in which your tribe supported you through this journey? And you can take that to mean, you know, the the people that you work with, you know, how have they supported your efforts? Or it could mean your family. How has your family supported you in your championing of these kids? Yeah, you know, um, there was a point in, in my life when I was a single mom and I, I was racked with guilt, of course, particularly on, as I think about wintertime snow days when, when my kids were still in school and, and I, you know, you'd have to rustle up care or as they got older, you know, they, they'd be a little bit on their own and, and, and I would just be racked with guilt. And I remember one of those times when I finally had found a babysitter and I was laying in bed with my girls and they were young at the time. And I said, I'm sorry, you know, I've, I've got to go to work. I'd love to be home playing with you guys in the snow today. And my youngest, Chelsea, looked at me and she pointed a finger in my face and she said, Mom, you have got to get out there and help those kids that don't have a family. <laughs> and so I think and she's she's my my social justice girl and she has always been like that. But all my all my children, I think, have supported those times when I've had to travel too much, when I felt guilty about not spending enough time with them. Um, uh, they they've been the first to say, stop it. You know, you've got it. You, you've got a job to do and we're fine. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. 
So, okay. And then the flip side of that is what is, what are some things that have been hurtful or ways that you've been misunderstood along this journey? Oh, I think, you know, particularly when you're in positions of leadership, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge to make sure that everybody understands your vision. And, and that's the, both the blessing and the curse of being in charge is, is implementing your strategic vision. And I think there've been times when it particularly, you know, over the past few years, as, as we've begun to grow significantly, not everybody is along for that ride and, and it's okay. Um, but sometimes there's confusion or um, um, lack of understanding or maybe lack of um, um uh, on my part, you know, not sharing enough about what the strategic vision was. So I think at times that the toughest part is the employee piece, making sure that employees are as supported as possible. But at, at, at sometimes you just have to do the, the tough, um, nope, this isn't going to work this way. And we're going to have to do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So and then this is the last one. But what what is your if you could just sum it all up? What is your biggest piece of advice or encouragement to adoptive families? And also, I mean, just the adoptive community as a whole. And you know what, I'm going to add a little spin to it, if that's okay. I want to hear what you have to say. But I also if if Dave were here, what do you think he would say Mm. in answer to this question? That's a great question. I think first of all, never, never, never be afraid to reach out for assistance, for help, for information. I think too often people feel like they're judged if they ask for help. And and uh, we celebrate when folks ask us for, um, you know, can you connect me to a resource? I'm having a challenge here. Who do you know that might help us? I think that's that's our greatest joy is to connect people to resources here. So I guess that's my advice. advice. Never, never, never hesitate asking for help. Dave would say, you know, God bless him. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, I think he would say, look, you're doing amazing work. It is amazing that you stepped forward and adopted or fostered a child. Just keep doing it. I, You know, it, I, his last few months, and I was new on the job that he was with us, I went and visited him, and we were going to have a board meeting the next day. And, and he was on the board still at that time, but but pretty much confined to home. And I said, hey, um, you know, what would you like me to tell the board members tomorrow? And he looked at me, and in very Dave Thomas way, he said, just tell them to get this job done. So <laughs> I think he would say the same to parents. Just keep doing what you're doing because you're doing such an amazing job. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing that. That's great. Well, okay. Thank you so much. Where can we find you on social media or Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I'm um, uh, certainly uh, on Twitter. I, I do mostly Twitter since the Facebook account here is pretty robust with from the foundation. But we have both a, a DTFA Twitter account and I have an, uh, my own. And it's at R Sorenen, R-S-O-R-O-N-E-N. I love engaging with people on Twitter and I keep it pretty much to this conversation. It's not a personal conversation. Um, but folks are always welcome to connect with me here at the Dave Thomas Foundation. I think they can find my email online. Um, but I'm happy to give it out as well. Uh, I think the best we can do is be responsive to um, people that, that, that really want to engage in this conversation. And I'm always open to that as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rita. This was such an honor. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I feel like I talked on and on and on, but you brought out the best of it. So thank <laughs> you for the, the great conversation and, and for your, um, the work that you're doing with this. It's so important to have these kinds of conversations and, and, to be able to share your personal journey in such a public way is amazing. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. This was so great. Thanks again. You bet. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey and he is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.